Hello there and welcome to the Paradox Podcast. Today we are looking at over 10 chapters of poetry and today's teaching is entitled The Impatience of Job. Last week, we pointed out how important it is to acknowledge and understand the literary structure of the book of Job. There are only three chapters written in prose, chapter one, chapter two, and the last chapter, 42. And in between those three chapters are 39 other chapters of poetry. Yes, 93% of the book of Job is a poem. That's important for us to acknowledge because poems tend to put a lot more emphasis on emotion and symbolism and metaphor than historical facts. But in our modern mindset, we place so much more emphasis on the passages written in prose that we often skip over or accept a summary of all 39 chapters of poetry. And if you were to ask most Christians what's contained in those 39 chapters of poetry, they would boil it down to essentially this. Well, Job suffers. Job's friends then show up and tell Job to curse God. Job refuses to curse God. God then blesses Job's faithfulness. And today, you should be like Job. And so preachers and pastors love to tell the story of Job because the application is so obvious that only an idiot could miss it. There's just one problem. That summary is the exact opposite of the actual content in the book of Job and specifically the 39 chapters of poetry that we're about to study. You see, in those 39 chapters, there are four different sections, and today we are going to be looking at section one. To fully appreciate section one, though, we have to go into the historical context. Now, the book of Job is very mysterious because it doesn't really reference any historical people or historical events. But scholars have two major guesses as to when this book was written, sometimes shortly after 722 BCE or shortly after 586 BCE. The reason for these two guesses specifically is that these are the two most traumatic experiences in Israelite history before the second century BCE. And based on the content of the book of Job, it seems to be written in response to a massive amount of trauma. Specifically in 722 BCE, that's when Assyria came in and destroyed most of Israel. 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel were wiped out in an instant. 150 years later, Babylon rose from the east and attacked Jerusalem and destroyed the city and took the remaining survivors back with them to Babylon and forced them to live in exile. To give you an idea of how important this event is in Israelite history, historian Peter Enns writes about it this way. He said, if I stood on a table covered in syrup with my hair on fire, I still couldn't draw enough attention to the importance of the Babylonian exile. The reason for this is when Assyria attacked in 722, you can imagine that after all of this massive destruction and death, theologians began to ask the question, why did God allow the Assyrians to conquer us? After all, if God is all loving and all powerful, and we are the chosen people of that God, and that God serves us before the Assyrians, why wouldn't God protect us from the Assyrians? 
And 150 years later, when the Babylonians forced the people of Judah to live in exile, you could imagine while they were living in exile, they asked the question, how did we end up living in exile? And so from those two events, they began to write their history and shape the narrative of where they came from to explain and understand the suffering they were enduring. Now we can read these histories in first and second Kings, and it makes it obvious what happens in these two books. Essentially, first Kings tells us time and time again, our kings chose to worship other gods instead of Yahweh. Second Kings then confirms this by saying we are living in exile because of our leaders' infidelities toward Yahweh. And in unison, they ask the question, the people that are suffering, you want to know why we are suffering? It's because of our historical lack of commitment to religion. And if we were more devoted to our religious practice, then God would have protected us from the Assyrians and God would have defended us from the Babylonians. And you can almost read between the lines when you read these histories today, where there is this hope that if the people living in exile are given a second chance, the hope is that they will recommit to their religion so they will be protected from future invasions. But it wasn't just historians who came to this conclusion. There were also prophets who wrote about how God was trying to punish the Israelites to get a point across and to ask them to change their behavior. But it wasn't just historians coming to this conclusion. Prophets were coming to this conclusion as well. The prophet Hosea wrote about the threat of Assyria by telling Israel that they were a whore that continually cheats on God. Now, if that sounds backwards and sexist to you, I will tell you that it is. And this is the problem that happens when you don't allow women to write prophecy like men get to write prophecy in the Bible. Another prophet named Amos also wrote about the destruction or the threat from Assyria and he told people that Israel is so deprived that it tramples the poor into the dust. And Israel will be punished by God because they do not take care of the poor. And so Hosea and Amos, both in unison and in their unique ways, that this Assyrian threat is God punishing us for our faithlessness. That we brought this suffering upon ourselves because we did not take our religion seriously enough. Now, two other prophets wrote about the Babylonian threat that Judah felt on a regular basis. Ezekiel and Jeremiah wrote continually about Babylon and its relationship with Jerusalem. Ezekiel talked about how Judah was a whore who continually cheated on God. And if that sounds backwards and misogynistic to you, it is. And once again, this is what happens when you don't allow women to write a significant portion of the Bible. Ezekiel, meanwhile, told the people at the temple shortly before the destruction that God has abandoned us because we do not take care of the poor. So in other words, Ezekiel and Jeremiah, 150 years after the Assyrian invasion, tell the people of Judah and some of them living in exile that God is punishing us for our faithlessness that we brought this suffering upon ourselves and that we need to be more devoted to our religion if we get a second chance. 
Well, I want you to think about this story from the perspective of the common person living in exile. Here they are going through massive amounts of suffering and the religious establishment tells them that they are to blame for the pain they are suffering from. On top of all the trauma these people were experiencing, the religious establishment and prophets were telling those same people that they only had themselves to blame. We can imagine people responding to this religious authority by saying enough, enough. I'm tired of you blaming me for everything. And in response, these people said to the religious people in charge, it's time for me to tell you a story. And it's in that context, either shortly before or after the Assyrian invasion or before or during the Babylonian exile, that someone who was not part of the religious authority told the story of Job. Now, this becomes obvious in Job chapter 1, verse 1, when we read these words. There was once a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. That man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. And immediately, the author wants us to know that Job didn't do anything wrong. And if you know the story of Job, you know that Job is about to suffer a tremendous amount. But Job didn't bring this on himself. And when we consider the historical context of this poetry, it becomes very clear that the character of Job is a metaphor for Israel. And one of the author's main point in writing this poem is that not all suffering is deserved. In other words, the innocent can suffer too. These were brand new ideas at the time that Job was written. And the reason this is a big deal is because there was this understanding that God was the author of all. And if you were suffering, it's because God was punishing you. Job was the first piece of literature in the Bible to question whether that was actually true. So as we continue to read in chapter one, we read about all of this suffering that occurs. And it reminds us of the trauma that Israel experienced at the hands of the Assyrians and the Babylonians. And during the first two chapters, Job stays faithful. Job continues to praise the name of God and to worship and offer sacrifices. But then Job becomes deathly ill. And after his children have died and his wife has rebuked him, three friends show up and they sit in silence with Job for seven days. And after seven days, Job has had enough. And he breaks his silence by cursing the day he was born. And chapter three is the first chapter that's written in verse. And it concludes with these words, my worst fears have happened, my nightmares have come to life, silence and peace have abandoned me, and anguish camps in my heart. Now when Job says this curse, his three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, all hear him say these words. They are each going to respond to Job and his curse, but we have to acknowledge that they're also a metaphor because Job is a metaphor for Israel in this poem. But these friends represent something more evil, don't they? These friends are the villain in the story. And when you look closely what these friends represent from the words that they speak, 
it becomes apparent that these friends are a metaphor for religion. And religion is the villain of this story. All of a sudden, it's starting to make sense why Christians come away with the opposite understanding of the actual content of the book of Job. Churches don't want people to know that religion is the true villain in the story and the poetry of Job. So when you hear these friends speak, imagine organized religion responding to Job when Job curses the day he was born. And remember that Job has lost everything. He's buried his 10 children. He's lost all of his wealth in a moment. He is experiencing severe trauma. And these three friends' responses is how the author perceives religion responding to trauma. So Job curses God, and then Eliphaz begins to speak to Job. Can an innocent man be punished? Can a good man die in distress? Now, these are rhetorical questions because religion knew that innocent men weren't punished. Only guilty men received the full wrath of God and had to endure suffering. He then goes on to say to Job, if I were you, Job, I would pray. I would put my case before God. God's workings are vast and fathomless. God's wonders beyond our grasp. You are lucky, Job, that God has scolded you. So take God's lesson to heart. For God wounds, but then binds up. God injures, but then God heals. When disaster strikes, God will rescue you and never let evil touch you. In war, God will save you from bloodshed, in famine from the grip of death. You will know that your house is protected and your meadows safe from harm. You will see your family multiply, your children flourish like grass. You will die at the height of your powers and be gathered like ripened grain. I know that these things are true. Consider them now and learn. When I read the words of Eliphaz, it reminds me of the church telling people who are suffering, hey, I know it's tough, but remember, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. In chapter 6, Job responds to this idea that God punishes only to bring people back to something better. His words are, if ever my grief were measured or my sorrow put on a scale, it would outweigh the sands of the ocean. That is why I am desperate. Look me straight in the eye, Eliphaz. Is this how a liar would face you? Can't I tell right from wrong? If I sinned? Wouldn't I know it? So Job looks Eliphaz directly in the eye and he says, I didn't do anything to deserve this. I'd remember a sin of this magnitude that caused me to suffer this much. I am not guilty, but I am innocent. From there, Job then turns to God and speaks directly to God in chapter 7. Job says, when I lie down, I long for morning. When I get up, I long for evening. All day I toss and turn. Won't you even give me time to swallow my spit? If I sinned, what have I done to you, O watcher of men? Why have you made me your target and burdened me with myself? Can't you forgive my sins or overlook my mistakes? For soon I will lie in the dust. You will call, but I will be gone.
And Job, after all of this suffering, is angry with God. I mean, you can understand Job's anger, right? Job is angry because he's lost everything. And he was told his whole life by the religious establishment that if he kept offering sacrifices and stayed devoted to God, that God would protect him. And he did all of that. And God didn't show up. So God didn't hold God's end of the bargain. And Job is angry with God for that. Now, Bildad hears Job being angry with God, and it really makes him uncomfortable. So he objects in chapter 8. He says, how long will you go on ranting, filling our ears with trash? Does God make straightness crooked or turn truth upside down? Job, your children must have been evil. God punished them for their crimes. God never betrays the innocent or takes the hand of the wicked. It's almost like Bildad is the church today telling someone who is suffering or grieving, the love of Jesus never fails. Everything happens for a reason. And Job is having none of it. In chapter 9, he tells Bildad, I am guiltless, but God's mouth condemns me. Blameless, but God's words convict me. God does not care. So I say God murders both the pure and the wicked. When the plague brings sudden death, God laughs at the anguish of the innocent. And one of the biggest misunderstandings about Job is that he clings tightly to his faith and his friends try to get him to give up his faith. But Job doesn't cling tightly to his beliefs. In this poem, Job clings tightly to his innocence and his children's innocence as well. So much so that after addressing Bildad, Job then turns to God for a second time and says to God, you lash me if I am guilty, shame me if I am not. You set me free, then trap me like a cat toying with a mouse. Why did you let me be born? Why couldn't I have stayed in the deep waters of the womb, rocked to sleep in the dark? You see, after all of this suffering, Job begins to question whether God is, in fact, good. And this questioning deeply concerns the religion that is ingrained in his friends. So much so that Job's last friend, Zophar, speaks up and he says to him, How can you understand God or fathom God's endless wisdom? It is higher than heaven. Can you reach it? Deeper than hell. Can you touch it? God's wisdom is wider than all the earth, broader than the breadth of the sea. If God seizes and casts in prison and condemns, who can stop God? For God knows that you are a sinner, Job. God sees and judges your crimes, but a stupid man will be wise when a cow gives birth to a zebra. Come now, repent of your sins, Job. Open your heart to God. And when I read the words of Zophar, it sounds exactly like the Christian church in America today saying, it is not our place to question God. It is only our place to trust and obey. No, I am not a fan of the hymn, Trust and Obey. But that's exactly what Zophar sounds like. So Job responds to Zophar in chapter 13 when he says, be quiet now, let me speak. Whatever happens will happen. I will take my flesh in my teeth and hold my life in my hands. God may kill me, 
but I won't stop. I will speak the truth to God's face. Listen now to my words and pay attention to what I say, for I have prepared my defense and I know that I am right. What Job is saying to Zophar here is that he is not interested in placating God anymore. From now on, Job's only desire is the ability to speak openly and honestly with God. And so Job does just that. In chapters 13 and 14, Job then begins to speak to God and he says, Grant me only one thing, and I will not hide from your face. Now, when Job asks God for one thing, what do you think he's going to ask God for? Well, we would assume that it's some sort of restoration of wealth or to have more kids or something that Job lost before. But Job doesn't ask for anything he had before. Job says, grant me one thing only. And in verse 22, the thing that he requests is, accuse me, God, and I will respond. Or let me speak and answer me. The only thing Job wants is for God to come out of hiding and to say out in the open what it is that Job did wrong. Job then goes on to ask questions of God. What crime have I committed? How have I sinned against you? Why do you hide your face as if I were your enemy? Will you frighten a withered leaf or hunt down a piece of straw? For you count up all my errors and convict me for the sins of my youth. Now, this is really fascinating because if you follow the story of Job, we are introduced to him in chapter one. And in chapter one, Job regularly offers sacrifices on the daily because he's worried his kids may have committed one sin, unintentionally, of course. Now, this is fascinating because Job is not offering sacrifices for himself because he knows he's innocent. But on the off chance that one of his daughters or one of his sons accidentally committed a sin, Job offers a sacrifice in their place. Why? Now, religion will point at Job's act of daily sacrifices and say, what a devoted individual. But if we could ask Job what his motive was behind those daily sacrifices, I believe that he would say, oh, I'm worried that God will take it all away. I'm worried that God will one day see a sin and punish us for it. And the truth is that Job is offering these sacrifices because he is afraid of God. We'll compare and contrast that with where Job is at in chapter 13 when he is calling God out and saying, grant me one thing, accuse me. Why do you hide your face as if I were an enemy? I just want to be honest with you. And what this story reveals is that after all of this suffering, Job is no longer afraid of God. At the beginning of the story, Job is clearly afraid, but now Job, oh, Job speaks very openly toward God. And Job lets go of the fear that he is holding on toward God because he's lost everything. And the only reason he had to worship before was religion told him that it would protect what he had. And then when he lost it all, well, what point is there to following God or worshiping God at that point, right? 
And when you look at the entire poem and Job's actions and reactions and accusations toward God, the thing that becomes abundantly clear to me when I read this poem is that it is a poem about how God betrays Job. In this poem, God betrays Job. And when we consider the historical context of this poem, and we look at the Assyrian and Babylonian invasions, we realize that in this poem, in this story, and in this history, God betrays Israel. Israel believes that God could have protected them, but God did not. This is a poem about being betrayed by God. Now, I have to tell you that I found this poem to be incredibly moving, particularly during this time of a global pandemic. Because almost every Christian I encounter will tell me that God has the power to put an end to this pandemic. But the truth is, God is not putting an end to this pandemic. And when you consider the massive and staggering amount of death and sickness and fear that humanity is feeling, and the economic instability, the losses of jobs, and all of the uncertainty that we are facing, we are currently experiencing a betrayal from God. In this poem, God betrays humanity. And the reason it is so moving and heartfelt and means something to us today is because we are experiencing the same thing. God betraying humanity. Now, organized Christianity bursts onto the scene. They've heard us talking about God betraying humanity, and they say, no, God doesn't betray humanity. We can explain why we're going through this global pandemic. And the reason that religion can explain the pandemic is because religion loves answers. Now, the author of Job understands this. After all, when you look at Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar, they are filled with answers, right? They can explain why Job is suffering the way that Job is to a T. And they're just trying to get Job to admit and accept their answers. So when we say God has betrayed humanity because of this global pandemic, religion will say, no, 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 we can explain. God is punishing us. And God is attempting to get us to change our behavior so that we may become more godly. Just this past week on Friday, The Guardian published a poll that revealed that two-thirds of U.S. believers see COVID-19 as a message from God. These two-thirds of U.S. believers also believe that God is asking us to change something about our behavior, and that is the reason why we are suffering on a global scale. So organized religion bursts in and says, we can explain the pandemic. God is angry with us and we need to change. In other words, you are to blame for this suffering. And if you can just recommit to religion, then God will give us reprieve. This sounds exactly like Zophar 
and Bildad and Eliphaz. So much so that there's this line in Job 8 where Bildad says to Job, a grieving father, these words, your children must have been evil, Job. God punished them for their crimes. Think about how unsympathetic, how unempathetic, how unwilling to suffer alongside someone you have to be to tell them after they have buried their kids that their kids deserved death. Now, I will give Bildad this. That is an answer, right? It is an answer for why things happen the way that they did. But let's all be honest. It's a terrible answer. My brothers, my sisters, and my friends, religion loves answers. But we need to be honest. They are terrible answers. And if God can only speak to us by sending us global pandemics and inflict massive amounts of suffering in an effort to get us to change our behavior, where we just kind of have to randomly guess what God wants us to change about our behavior, well, at that point, we are not worshiping a good God. We are worshiping a tyrant. And religion is fine with it because they have their terrible answer. And if Job was alive with us today, hearing religion telling the world that God is angry with us, that God wants us to change our behavior, he would say, oh, this again? Now, the reason we don't identify with the friends of Job, but instead we identify with Job, is because on some level we have all felt betrayed by God. I personally have felt betrayed by God, specifically during this past week. And to understand why I felt betrayed by God, I have to go back to 2015. Now, some of you know our story. Some of you do not know our story and where Paradox Church came from. But back in 2015, we started as a young adult group at a local church here in Redlands. After some time, it became obvious it wasn't a good fit for us to be there anymore. And I was removed for that position in a rather difficult way. I was heartbroken, I was confused, I was angry. But after a lot of conversations, a lot of planning, and a lot of prayer, 10 weeks later, we had our first service of Paradox Church, and I have been so grateful for this community ever since then. I bring all of that up because 10 weeks ago from this past Sabbath was our last church service together at Paradox Church. In other words, from March 7 to May 16, this past Saturday, was the same distance between the last service of the shadow and the first service of paradox. This is now officially longer than the gap between those two ministries. And I feel betrayed by God because I have to ask God the question, why are you putting us through this again? We already did this once. The separation, and it was awful, and it was heartbreaking. And this second time isn't much better. It's getting longer. And I want us to meet together in church again, and I only want to do that when it's safe. And we'll get together and we sing songs about God reigning above it all and how God's love never fails. But God's not doing anything about this. 
And I feel betrayed by God for allowing this whole pandemic to happen, including our canceled church services. Now, you may be experiencing some other form of loss. You may have lost your job. And if you've gone through that, then you probably feel betrayed by God. You may have gotten sick during this season of illness. And if you've gotten sick, you may have felt betrayed by God. Or worse, you may have lost a loved one. And I don't know about you, but I, I get incredibly sad thinking about people who have had to say goodbye to their loved ones over FaceTime because they can't be by their bedside while they're dying. If you've gone through something like that, don't you feel betrayed by God? This pandemic is a betrayal from God. And if we had Job on this podcast with us and we could talk to Job and we could say, Job, I feel betrayed by God. I think that Job would just look at us and respond by saying, me too, man. Me too. You see, Job doesn't give us answers. Instead, Job gives us companionship in the unresolved mystery of our suffering. And the heartbreaking irony of all of this story is that religion takes this story and says, see, we can get some answers here. But they're all terrible answers. When the church, I believe, is called not to provide answers to the world when it comes to suffering, but instead is called to companionship in the midst of our questions about where God is when we feel betrayed. To my brothers, my sisters, and my friends, if you are suffering, then hear me say, me too. Me too. And may we offer companionship to another in the unresolved mystery of our suffering. And may we also accept companionship from another in the unresolved mystery of our suffering. And may we prioritize companionship over answers during this season of betrayal. And may we see and embrace Jesus Christ, even here in the unresolved mystery of our suffering.